everybody. My name is Aram Milkumov. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Crowdlinker. Uh, here we are today with uh, Jeff uh, from Cava Capital, participating in our first inaugural fireside chat uh, event series uh, focused with venture capitalists and investors. Uh, quickly about myself, I'm I'm um, the CEO of this company. I'm uh, been in the tech space for about 13 years. Crowdlinker is my third company. Crowdlinker is uh, an end-to-end -end digital product studio. We work primarily with startups and scale-ups on building out new, new, new product solutions for their, uh, for their businesses. And um, the reason why we're doing this pre-recorded fireside chat with uh, investors is because we want to kind of get some inside and in-depth knowledge from the investors directly themselves around investment advice and strategies for deployment of capital. And this is a new series. Uh, we found that there was a, a gap in the market in terms of uh, this type of knowledge, in terms of getting very genuine, authentic uh, ideas, in terms of how to approach investors uh, as a startup founder, in terms of uh, structuring your capital needs. So uh, here today we have Jeff uh, 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 from Cava Capital. Jeff, how about we start off by just you giving us a little bit of intro about yourself and uh, Cava Capital and the focus of your investment firm. Sure. Thanks again. Appreciate it. Uh, name is Jeff Schneider. I'm the founder and uh, of, of Kava Capital, which uh, we are a 16-year-old boutique uh, venture capital firm. And um, so we've been over the last 16 years, we've been focusing most of our energies on uh, sort of digital economy companies. And, uh, you know, through the early part of the of Kava's history, we we did a lot of, um, of things that, that ended up being um, companies that we either got involved with at the earliest stages or companies that we started to found ourselves. We just found that there okay. were holes in the, um, in the themes that we were looking for. And so mm -hmm. being former entrepreneurs um, or former, you're always an entrepreneur once you're an entrepreneur, but uh, we found that some of the best ways to attack the problem set was to go and start companies ourselves. And so the past you know, 13, 14 years, we've worked with um, a bunch of investors, obviously entrepreneurs, and we've built um, well, about 20 companies. And with that said, uh, we've invested in about 50. So um, early stage investing, in our opinion, is, is much more about just the dollars you write or the checks you write. It's really about uh, applying your domain or, or um, mm -hmm. operational you know, expertise to those businesses. And so we look for specific businesses where the, either the founder is looking for uh, a technical or business co-founder, one or the other, and okay. is also looking for money at the same time. So if you think of us as sort of this hybrid between mm. uh, entrepreneurs, you know, being entrepreneurs and operators um, and investors, that's and what investors. we are. Yeah, and so and we take it pretty seriously. We we've, we've got involved, as I've said, in in uh, five companies which we've started, and another fifteen or so which we've we've partnered with. So uh, okay. right now, uh, the kind of things that we're looking for, to be honest with you, um, you know, our focus, if essence, is uh, we're a relatively small group. Uh, we've got four partners and a couple of mm -hmm. other uh, administrators, but we're. Um, we're really looking for those kind of businesses in the really focusing on the digital economy, which is a big, broad cross section, but, but things that ultimately, um, you know, play around our themes, which, 
uh, you know, I can go into a lot of detail, but they have to do with the millennial consumer and the Gen Z consumer and how digital natives are, are, are now in a world where, uh, you know, all the applications, all the business processes, everything they do, all even consumerism is focused on, um, you know, on these folks and biggest um, demographic shift that we've seen since the baby boomers in, in almost uh, 50 years. So uh, we look at this intersection between digital wellness, I'm sorry, a digital economy and consumer uh, lifestyle and wellness. And so we've done a number of deals in that space. So it's been a hell of a run of the first, uh, I'd say 14 years, we were doing most of our deals in SPVs. Uh, so individual deals, individual funds in essence. And, uh, and now we're out raising a, uh, a pretty, you know, substantial fund, a hundred million dollar fund. Is this going to be the first fund, like fund one, fund two? No, we don't call it fund one. We actually call this kind of a studio. Because um, okay, again, cool. it, it all, whether you do one deal or whether you do a hundred, it's the same principle, right? You still have to start, yeah. uh, start the fund, you still have to fund it. You still have to maintain it and do all the investor relations and everything else you would do as a fund manager. But at the same time, you're working with the company. So whether I, you know, I had, six seven going at the same time it, it, yeah. it's like running a fund so technically is the first pooled capital vehicle um but you know from a fund standpoint it's not the first time we've ever ma uh, managed any capital so okay, cool, i think cool. the key here is that this owner operator approach we call studio yeah. is really the differentiator it, it, it's a deep dive it's a partnership with entrepreneurs we in, in almost in all cases get Founders capital, so uh, almost like uh, common equity. Um, mm -hmm. Even before we invest our our dollars in preferred equity, and, and we do that because we really do treat it as um, you know an operation or a, or a co-founding role. We will often take um, executive hands-on roles. Okay. Yeah, so that's interesting. Yeah, actually, it's funny. Um, uh, six months ago, we did our first kind of venture builder model where we actually partnered in with the company via an equity approach to sure. kind of have this operator mindset, but also investor mindset with them as a business. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's been interesting for us because we're trying to kind of diversify a little bit, not kind of only do professional service work, but also have uh, some vested interest to some of the more promising startups that we get to work with. So we're kind of like a studio ourselves, but we don't we don't have the capital yet to invest like you do. So yeah, <laughs> one day I hope it's the um, holy grail. I mean, I, I I have a services background, like so. I, I early in my career, I worked for a number of services firms, and I actually helped. Uh, you know, in one of those firms, we, I helped uh, co co run the internal venture capital fund or in essence the, the corporate venture capital fund and we did it specifically to do what you just mentioned which is we were a services firm we were obviously getting paid for building out uh you know strategies and and and, and other specific technical aspects of uh our clients needs but we we wanted to double down in a sense and and share in the upside uh, development of the company's enterprise value and yeah. we never led or anything but we but we got very close to the you know the venture capital and private equity worlds and and it's it's hard to meld those two because if you're not a if you're if you're not in both or if you're in both camps but you really don't have a strategy per se it's 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 a little bit like throwing darts right i mean so um the business models can meld but it, it's it's yeah. more often than not that they don't so one of the things that we notice is that it's hard to take on too many of these type of things because we're we just we're starting another one and 
what we see is that like sometimes you know we're invested in these companies and we want them to succeed and if they start struggling then it's just like our opportunity cost at the same time that we're losing out here so like if we spread ourselves too thin at the same time then it becomes uh, you know difficult to make sure that we could have success in each one so we try to you know try to stay focused so yeah it's it very sounds, interesting i mean sounds like the uh the, the entrepreneur's dilemma as well right where do you where do you spend your time right? where do you spend your time yeah exactly cool um thanks so much again uh for joining us um had some kind of talks uh, to talking points i wanted to go through with you um wanted to kind of learn a little bit first in terms of um your relationship with ceos so like you know you have a lot of uh, founders co-founders of companies that come to you or looking for capital let's say like hypothetically you're meeting them for the first time um just for the people who are going to be listening into this what what i want to ask is like what is like the one thing um you wish that ceos would ask you more and that you know that you've seen that they don't you know start off with or they don't approach it correctly initially i'd say that's pretty simple um and that's what can we meaning kava in this particular case what can we bring to the table to change the game right i think i think and this is generic but but for the most part ceos are out looking for money right that's why they're doing it and and mm -hmm. that's fine you know there's plenty of uh there's plenty of opportunities to raise capital whether it's family offices or direct investors or institutional venture capital players or uh, or other hybrids. And if all you're looking for is money, then you're going to be solely focused, you know, on getting the money on that in your conversation. But the reality is, I think CEOs, the best CEOs we've ever with, uh, and one of the reasons why we work with them multiple times in, in some cases, mm -hmm. are those who understand that being a CEO is is about building the right toolbox, right? It's about building the team and building all the components that you may not bring to the table. So understanding what a company needs, when it needs it, and how it needs it is, is really the focus area of, of, the, of a, what I think is a high-performing CEO. So how can I surround myself with people that are in many ways smarter than me but certainly can bring things that I can't bring because at the end of the day, it's all about resource allocation, right? So whether that resource is money or whether it's time or whether it's people, you've got to be able to understand the bigger picture. And I think most um, uh, entrepreneurs, especially young entrepreneurs who haven't been through this, they, um, they think that they've got it all, right? And they just not need the money to execute it and and maybe some of them do and that's totally fine but um they very rarely ask you know so how what do you bring you, to the table yeah. yeah how can you significantly change the vector here right mm -hmm. money's going to be one answer right but it's not the whole answer especially in our case but um but that's the one question i wish i wish i got more just, they just they, they just don't ask very often uh, why do you think that is is that they're they don't want to look like that they don't know um, all the answers and they don't want to come off looking stupid or silly or that if they come to you asking that, then they might feel like they're unprepared or something like that. Like, what are your thoughts? I, yeah, I don't know what the reasoning is. I, maybe, maybe it's just being, not, not being afraid to show, sort of show your cards, but that's, I don't mm -hmm. think that's a weakness at all. I mean, if you're a great CEO, you should be saying, hey, look, I, 
Here's what our plan is. Here's how I'm going to get there. Here's how much it's going to cost. And here's where I'm deficient in, in, in tools, mm-hmm. right? resources or, mm-hmm. or, or capital or whatever. And know how or whatever. Yeah. yeah. This is where I need help. Right. And, and if you're, are, are you guys, is this something that you guys do? You know, it's a very simple question. Um, yeah. I don't think it shows weakness at all. I think it's the proper question that a CEO or a founder should be asking you know, is where can mm-hmm. you plug holes? Cause Mm-hmm. I mean, with the ve- there are very few exceptions. I mean, sometimes in, in the Valley, there's, you're able to sort of assemble a, 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 an ace, you know, sort of an all-star team from day one and uh, command the attention of 15 different venture capitalists and raise as much money as you need. And now you're off to the races because you're a proven entrepreneur. But that's, that's one out of, yeah. uh, you know, thousands. So, All right, right. Okay. That's very interesting. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I totally understand the mindset. It's like... Um, I think it's a common thing that isn't brought up enough as well as like another one, which I want to ask about is about, you know, capital needs, like some, some investors, sorry, some founders go to investors and, you know, they ask for more capital than they need. And, you know, they haven't planned their budgets accordingly or something like that. And they ask for more than, than what is required. And, you know, that becomes a problem for them maybe at that time or later on. Like, what are your thoughts about like raising too much capital as a CEO? Well, I think it's a two-way street. So, excuse me, but it can happen either side of that transaction. So the, the, the founder can be, you're absolutely right. The founder could say, hey, you know, I need X amount of dollars. And, you know, in essence, this is a big slush fund, right? I mean, and I don't mean that negatively. It's just they, they don't really have an idea of, of what, they're trying to achieve between the day they raise capital and let's just say the next milestone. I mean, having a having a, a, a bit of an understanding about what the what the pattern here is going to look like mm-hmm. is, a, is a important piece. So, you know, I'm going to raise my seed here, or my Series A, or whatever you are, and you know, at, at whatever point, and we want to achieve the following five things, and we think by doing that, we can improve our valuation and improve the chances that we get a you know, a larger round of capital, which is going to ultimately take us to the next milestone, which we think ultimately takes us to the promised land, right? That's what we're trying to do here. It's just a, mm-hmm. it's just a natural, um, you know, process-driven, uh, non-emotional way to look at uh, building a business. Capital is a gigantic portion of this, right? So, but having the right amount of capital at the right times is going to do two things. One is it's going to focus the energies around the right set of milestones, it's going yeah. to it's going to limit dilution, right? I mean, that's from a founder standpoint, I think important. I would certainly hope so because I would say so, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and then I think there's the 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 third benefit, which is I think it installs discipline. So focus mm-hmm. is one thing, discipline's another. And discipline is ultimately about outcomes, right? And um, I think being responsible for outcomes is a great way to not only demonstrate to the, your capital providers that you're worthy of being trusted. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to your employees that you're worthy of being trusted and that you've taken right. you know, a very pragmatic approach. Now, there absolutely has to be an amount of um, cushion. I guess mm-hmm. is the right word that you need to build in, and that's okay. You can say, "Look, I, you know, I don't want to ever have less than six months of cash in my account because 
in, for the sense of, you know, not understanding what the funding environment may be at that at the at the next at next time. Who knows? The world could yeah. be in another COVID crisis, right? Yeah. Or uh, or you you always have to plan for the unplannable, right? And so um, the worst thing you want to do is be caught in a situation where you have too little cash and then the people on the other, my side of the table can take advantage of that, right? They know you're running out of cash. They're going to drive a harder bargain and better valuation for themselves. That's not, that's not a good place to be. So I think a little bit of a give and take here. The other thing I see happen a lot is that um, venture cap, especially larger venture capital firms who, you know, they've raised very large sums of money. And, you know, if you do, if you do the math, they have to, have to, they have to deploy it and they have to deploy yeah. it in relatively large chunks. A $3 million investment for a billion dollar fund doesn't, it just, it's just hard, right? So mm -hmm. they've got to get 20, 25, $30 million, if not more into that business at some point. And so they often will ask you to, to take a larger amount of money up from and give you excuses like, Hey, you know, you're going to need it. Or, and, and there's some truth to that, but at the end of the day, they're trying to deploy capital. And, and so yeah, I think a founder has to be a little bit wary of that. Um, and that, that just creates this mentality where, um, which I've seen often happens a lot in the Valley, but where it's this, you know, unicorn or nothing approach because now the valuation creep starts to happen early when you haven't really done anything. And all of a sudden the only real exit is some, you know, super inflated valuation. Well, that's great if, if you're chasing as it's a, a zero sum game. It's either a, a unicorn or nothing. But the reality is most companies don't make it to unicorn status. They never will. It doesn't mean they're bad companies. It doesn't mean they can't return immense amounts of money to their shareholders and ultimately for themselves. And if the, if the, if the game is to build a, a really good business, you know, there's nothing wrong with a couple, you know, a hundred million dollar exit. If you got if you entered in at the right valuation, you can make eight, ten times your money. Well. Mm -hmm sometimes that gets thrown by the wayside from the minute it starts because they throw so much capital into a business so early valuations already at, you know, a hundred million. So it's crazy. Yeah. So it's already overvalued. Yeah. It's, yeah. And, and from my perspective, it, from an investor's perspective, and maybe I'm just doing this because my, you know, my perspective is such that I, I don't want to deploy, you know, lots of capital into uh, unicorn chasing things. I, if we get a unicorn, that's fantastic, but it's not because, uh, we started from day one thinking that it's because mm -hmm. the business earned that and ultimately we're going to keep, you know, investing into that. So um, I just find it's, it's disingenuous on both sides sometimes to raise too much capital. Okay. Awesome. Um, and I, I know you mentioned earlier in the call that you do a lot of um, a lot of hands-on work with some of the, or all the companies that you have in your portfolio. Like specifically, like once you raise, once you, you know, put invest, invest money into a company, what kind of handholding do you do with the founder or like how involved, like, can you give us some examples of how you monitor those funds uh, that are being deployed? The funds or, or the types of things we do through Cop Studio? What, what are you specifically asking? Well, no, sorry. Specifically to the um, startup itself. Like when, when you invest into them, what kind of handholding do you do? Okay, yeah, and I'll try to circle it back to how we monitor the spend of capital as well. So, I mean, look, every company is different, right? So it depends. If we're starting it, it's one thing, right? And, mm -hmm. and very often, myself or 
one of our partners will, or, or our operating partners, we have a pretty uh, diverse set of operating partners who we've built businesses with that want to build other businesses with us. And so we'll, we'll install them or, or they're already installed because it's their business. Um, in, in, in that CEO role or COO role, I'm, we have one right now in Southern California. It's a, a functional beverage uh, where uh, one of my operating uh, folks is playing uh, the COO of the company. And um, she's doing an amazing job. I mean, it, it, the, the company would not be where it is without her. And so mm-hmm. that's, you know, everything from the, helping to form the company, if that's where it is, to uh, looking at the market opportunity to really defining uh, and acquiring, you know, what the needs are, the human capital needs are, the capital needs are, the product strategy, software, hardware, depending on what it is. Uh, Mm -hmm. I get unbelievably involved in the fundraising. So aside from putting our own money in, you know, if, if, if we want a diverse, have a, a relatively diverse set of investors, I'll, I'll get involved in fundraising and literally in some cases take it over. I'm working with another studio company right now where I'm responsible in the company for fundraising, even though we're putting, we put our money in. So, really? wow. okay. oh, yeah. so it takes it off the CEO's shoulders, right? Because that CEO has got to be focused on delivering the product architecture, right? Yeah. So we, I take over that. Um, we do, you know, standard company or or, or customer building. So, in the case of a company that's looking to sell its um, solution or get beta clients for a solution that they're working on, we'll make massive introductions to you know different companies in that space. If we know the space very well, of course, we wouldn't have done the deal if we didn't. So, uh, we'll make introductions. We'll even you know run through the sales process. Uh, we help them with IP building, product building. We have hardware, software, you know, relationships that can help that. So the concept is to accelerate, you know, that business building or end or de-risk the company through those really formative years or, or months mm-hmm. in some cases, right? And yeah, critical periods when they get the capital. For sure. Totally. Because, I mean, you can get so distracted with like nuance, you know, I mean, yeah. it, to have one person be responsible for everything from, well, you know, am I, is my Delaware organizational documents in the right place to, uh, to fundraising, to product build? I mean, and, and it's great. Like that's what CEOs are supposed to do. But if I can help take some of that off the table or my team can help, then that's what we're going to do. And now, and then we've built, helped build the, or rebuild or build the models in, uh, you know, for, for how the business is going to operate, um, help staff the company. I've got human resources uh, relationships uh, right on our team, you know, multiple year human resources professionals. We've got finance people, we've got investor relations people that we have relationships with, and we literally can come in and, and deep dive with the company. So it's a little bit like, you know, you're technically. Focused, you got a triage team. Yeah, we have a team. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, yeah. and we bring a. I don't. I want. I don't want to call it like a. There's no formula, but yeah. it involves all those different things. And then at the end of the day, you know, we monitor. We help them monitor their, their progress, right? And we we install discipline at both the board and I think uh, executive mm-hmm. team level to monitor you know, how they're achieving their goals versus the spend of capital. And so we, so again, back to the earlier conversation, so they don't get in a position where they're, have, they're desperate for money because they've either overspent or underdeveloped, you know, a certain set of resources. So, yeah. so, so let's talk about that. I mean, it's a common mistake that founders typically make. Um, I'm curious to get, I mean, you touched upon it before, but why do you think that happens? Like, how can they plan better in terms of their fundraising 
um, the, the fundraising timelines? Like how can they be more prepped or have the right mindset towards this? Experience. I mean, I hate to say it, but it's one of those things where sometimes, and I, 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 it just is, but you learn mm -hmm. because you went, you've gone through it once or twice, right? Mm -hmm. And I'll give you an example. I can't tell you the company because they're still a current portfolio company, but one of my, um, one of my mo most significantly senior uh, leadership teams is, mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they are unbelievable. Um, great, great uh, execution team. They built another company that was that was sold for close to a billion dollars. Okay, so prior to this, okay, prior to this all right. Um, so very successful company, very big exit uh, to a very well-known name. Okay, they learned through that process how bad it can be by not really understanding not only the funding process but the whole. The, the, the litany of things that have to be done uh, through through that process. And I, I mean that because they got diluted so badly. So even with a close to billion dollar exit, and look, they're not they're not poor, they're not going to be starving, but they, they, they ended up with, you know, single digit percentages of the company. Why? Because throughout the process, they they didn't understand various checkpoints, or certainly uh, maybe raised institutional venture capital money way too early. And when you get big institutions and multiple institutions in your company and, and things start to click like that, as I told you earlier, and maybe there's too much yeah. money or there's paid to the wrong things, all of a sudden you need more money and you keep diluting and diluting and diluting. And, and that's what, that's what happened here. So they swore with this new company, which is also a billion dollar plus company today, I think will be a mega billion dollar company when it's all said and done. Wow. Uh, that that wasn't going to happen to them. So they never took institutional capital until recently. And that's 12, basically 12 rounds into their, uh, into their company. They've raised $300 million at this point and, um, you know, have uh, executed flawlessly. And now the founders own, you know, well more than half the company. So it's well, a lot of experience. Lots it's of a lot of experience. So that has the number one thing, you know, that comes, but, you know, working with, um, this is a little bit of a commercial, but working with, with, you know, folks like us or others who have, you know, deep experience and are really founder led and are founder driven. We have no pretensions about wanting to make uh, the founder or the team in this particular case, uh, very successful, both financially and, um, you know, and, and spiritually in that sense. Right. So that we want to help them build their dreams, their companies. Now we're going to participate along the way, but we feel that if the founder is successful, we're going to be very successful in this particular case. So that's yeah, a real that's partnership. The, and that's the way we, we approach it. No, that's really interesting. Um, I know you also invest, you know, B2C and B2B companies. Talk about like consumer companies that you invest in. Uh, you mentioned uh, previously um, when we were talking earlier um, that you find that consumer companies or companies that, you know, have a B2C offering spend sometimes too much money marketing early and they burn through that cash quite quickly and i'm just curious like why do you think that happens and how can how can ceos avoid it or like kind of like learn from this 
not, I mean, yeah, marketing early is the right way to put it, but it's not about, it's, it's spending the wrong marketing dollars. Like marketing, when you're a consumer company, I mean, your you're end, you're end consumer is right there. It's, it's directly in front of you and you have to market, right? So it's channel management, I guess, is the better way to put it, right? Understanding where you're getting your best yeah. customers from and, and really having a data infrastructure in place to, um, to both monitor and adjust that spend in real time. Now, that seems trite because people say that, well, I do have that. The reality is a lot of them don't. They don't really have that level of sophistication. So if you're gonna spend anywhere early on before you really start to um, spend on consumer acquisition or customer mm -hmm. acquisition, Make sure your data infrastructure is in place to monitor it literally in real time because it's there for you. I mean, Google made it easy for you, right? Uh, Facebook's made it easy for you. you know, Instagram's made it easy for you. You can, you can do that. Now, I think there's a non-monetary way to get a lot of uh, uh, brand building done or even uh, product building done. And that those things have to be, you know, well understood. And I think you have to go into them with a... Um, sort of a, a, an understanding of pivoting really quickly when things aren't working or your customer acquisition costs are, are not where they should be in this particular case. I've seen too many companies, another one of my portfolio companies, I'm not, not going to mention them, but you know, they got trapped here. It almost cost them the company, number one, but number two, they were able to pivot and, um, and immediately adjust and, and go back to a much more, um, focused set of leaner okay uh, yeah leaner i mean focused set of energies around how to acquire customers and um you know it's because the industry was demanding it at the time that oh you just go acquire as many customers as you can and so they they just went out and spent like crazy uh to do that and, and yeah they got customers but they also those customers also churned seven times faster than um you know their other the way they acquired their customers traditionally which got them to there in the first place and and ultimately the cat so the cat was high and the um you yeah. know the ltv was virtually zero so zero. that's just a waste of money and they burned through almost 15 million dollars doing that i was like that was just gigantic waste of money do you so. think that do you think some of these mistakes go or there's different types of mistakes that happen uh at b2b focused companies uh once they get their raise like commonly there's some issues around like maybe you're hiring too fast they're just growing and like they, they don't know why they're hiring all these people like what are some some things you could uh talk about that you've seen i think that's right i think <clears throat> whether it's hiring internally or um staffing up ahead of the curve Right. And that that comes with uh, fiscal discipline. Like we were talking earlier. Right? I mean, yeah. uh, you know, there are reasons to do that in, in most cases. Of course, you're always doing that when you're when you don't have a product, you're ahead, you're ahead of your curve. But I'm specifically talking about now that you're you have enough people to build the product, but now you're going to hire certain talent. It doesn't matter where it could be engineering. It could be sales, it could be whatever infrastructure you're building um, well ahead of, you know, having customers. Um, and in B2B, it's all about having, you know, relationships, beta customers in place or paying customers in place. We happen to love businesses that <clears throat> in essence will build their, their, their product is built off of a, 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 an identified and already agreed upon customer, customer need. Right. Okay. So often the founders come from an industry, they're they've been trying to solve a problem one way for whatever numbers of years and 
they've identified it as a giant hole. They go out, they get three or four people that agree with them that are outside their organization. So they become in essence, uh, not only customers, but sort of like pilot customers. Or? Yeah, but not just pilot, but they also, they're also like sort of a product feedback loop, you know, from day okay. one. Yeah. And the company gets built on that. And that, that to me is a really great way to build it. So, but a lot of companies don't do that. So they hire and they build infrastructure and they make mistakes by, um, you know, over, over allocating resources to things before they're identified as a need. And so they, sometimes I think they, uh, you know, B2B companies also can get caught up in um, uh, analysis paralysis. You know what I mean? Um, so they'll spend a lot some, Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, do you think there's like an innovator's dilemma there as well still? Maybe, but I mean, it, I, I understand it. We've all done it. We want to, we want to make sure what we're building is, is, um, you know, is on target, but you know, you can't, research will only tell you so much, you know I mean? You have to do your research when mm -hmm. you're wrong, but I'd rather do it with customers to, get, to be honest with you, because they're going to tell you exactly what they want, what they're, what they're willing to pay for. So uh, I know it sounds it sounds pretty simple, but it, it, it's right. often not the case. No. I think the other I, thing that happens is, and it's not the, it's not the company's faults, but I've seen it happen multiple times. I mean, frankly, we've lost money in businesses that when the market shifts relatively radically, mm -hmm. a company's inability to wind down that part and, and pivot quickly is a is a really really big problem right now look sometimes you get caught and you just you're so single threaded there's no way around that but um but the most successful companies we've seen pivot on a dime you know what i mean and yeah. um and that means you have to have a really great ceo and team a leadership team that understands and is constantly watching the market and what what the macro trends are and how they affect your in essence, micro trends and what you're working on, right? And if you're if you can't have an intelligent and honest conversation with yourself, your board, and all your employees about something that's happening, and and be able to make decisions on a fly, it's going to be tough. And so, how do you think that? Just out of curiosity, I mean, I'm sure this happened in your portfolio companies. Maybe you could talk about one or two as examples. But like, how does a management team or a leadership team at a company like this be able to? have this type of mindset like that they can advocate behind or, or stand behind. Don't get emotionally connected to one thing. Okay. I mean, uh, look, we're all, we're all human beings. So there's, you know, you get passionate about something and, and, and sometimes that passion and energy is great. It's what, what's what we are investing in. Right. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you can't be so passionate um, and so single threaded that you can't see the rest, you know, of the, of the world. And sometimes shit happens, excuse my French, but, uh, perfect example was what happened in, you know, the late sort of like between 2011 and 2013 in the ad tech industry, right? And there were a thousand ad tech companies, you know, in 2009, 2010, 11, 12 by 13, um, that industry had fundamentally changed like radically overnight. Well, not overnight, but in, within a span of a year. And if you were unable to pivot your business, you were gone, literally gone because 
it was a commodity. All the agencies started in, in, inboarding or in-housing uh, certain technologies. You know, what used to be a, um, a managed service business, you know, needed to become a data business overnight. And companies that were ill-prepared for that or didn't have the infrastructure or frankly didn't have, uh, you know, the leadership team to, to make a critical call were dead. I mean, I, I had a couple of them myself. So, and we tried, you know, but it didn't work. And so um, in some cases, you know, we had one or two and one that's still around that's actually doing pretty well now. Um, they immediately uh, changed everything. I mean, they laid off half their staff, but, and it's terrible that that had to happen, but that was critical because they got out of a business that was a dying business. We're able to make that, you know, that, that adjustment and unfortunately decouple the emotion from it and, and just move to rebuild the infrastructure in a way that repositioned the company, hopefully for, you know, a better outcome. Very interesting. Yeah, I'm sure your, your, your portfolio has a lot of experience having gone through uh, all the changes that has happened this year. I'm sure there's lots of lessons learned there. Uh, yeah. Well, to, I've been to, the CEO of a business, you know, as I told you, we're hands on. One of the businesses that I started is, I mean, grossly affected by the uh, COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a wellness, but it's a retail wellness business, right? I mean, it's got, oh, yeah. we've got five locations, four and a half locations, and we're, we were closed for two months, literally closed, three months. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, went to zero. Yeah. But here we are, and, uh, Companies thriving, and you know we we literally spent that time. And I'm not saying I'm the perfect CEO. I'm not, but um, we took that time to look at every single business process that we had, up and down the food chain. The way we from from the way we we checked people in and out of a of a studio to the way we bought our insurance. I mean, and everything in between. Like, and so we said, now's the time. We never, we've, we've been wanting to do these things since we started and we've never yeah. had the time. Every, it always seems to be an excuse for not looking at this or that because you're so busy, you know? And now, so we, we just took, took, took the opportunity to reinvent ourselves and everything that went along with it. Some of it's systematic because of the COVID situation, you have to be complying with state and local laws, but most of it was actually us. It's like, all right, how, how do managers in their studios actually do their job? How do they do them better? How do we do timesheets? How do we do this? How do we do that? You know, and then how do we use technology to, uh, to create digital versions of what we do physically? I mean, literally looked at every single thing. No. Wow. Um, awesome. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Just last question that I want to ask everybody who's going to be on the series is what would be your, your, your best uh, message that you want to give to CEOs who are going to be raising money uh, later this year or into early next year? Any big, big yeah. messages you want to send out there? Yeah. Well, I mean, this is going to sound counterintuitive because I just talked about how you shouldn't raise too much money, but um, I think it's um, it's going to be rough. Um, uh, you know, we're caught in a weird spot right now. I. Uh, venture capitalists or other folks who now fund um, startups or early stage companies, there mm-hmm. are plenty of different avenues to look for. So I, I, my first piece of advice would be don't just fall into a, you know, a, a single lane about how to raise capital. There are plenty of ways to raise capital today. So 
you know, whether it's us or anybody like us, um, that's great. And you can go through those processes. I think the, the yeah. venture industry is, um, is deploying capital. There's not, not even a question about it, but they're deploying capital with both people they know well and, um, and in themes that resonate around COVID, which it's a little bit like, you know, running to the ball after it's already been kicked to some degree, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. But that's okay. You know, that's, that's, that's this industry. We, you run towards trends. So if you're on trend, great. If you're not, you may have to look for alternative ways to raise capital because I think the rest of the uh, traditional VC funnel has been hampered a bit. I think people are being more cautious. The public markets being counterintuitive to the real world doesn't help because people, you know, who are non-traditional investors, family offices, uh, individuals, might be angels, whatever, <clears throat> can make, they feel like they can make a lot of money in the public markets right now, right? And without yeah. the risk of, to, of, you know, seven years and going out of business every time, which yeah. is <laughs> it's hard. So you have to look wide <clears throat> for different uh, things. Don't, don't be afraid to use the crowdfunding markets. I'm a big supporter of those as a, as a way to supplement your raise and they've made it a lot easier to do that now um mm -hmm. and and i mean ways that even things like aggregating your cap table before you you could do a crowdfund but you have to put um every single investor had to go on your cap table which is a, it's really hard um and and dealing with you know a thousand dollar guy versus a hundred thousand dollar guy it takes the same amount of time don't 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 think it does it so, but now that you can aggregate all your, all your investors into one user so that the crowdfunding platforms will often have an SPV or, or something like that to, to aggregate them all. And that's helpful. Um, so don't be afraid to use uh, those kind of markets and really think about <clears throat> the dollars you need to raise. Really think about, excuse me, I'm just having a, <clears throat> a little bit of a, to really think about how you can allocate that over time and then add, add three to six months, right? Um, because I think now more than ever, it's gonna be great to have cash, a little bit of cash on your um, balance sheet in addition to what you need it for. So I'm not, I'm not advocating taking way too much money. I'm not even, I'm just saying, find your sweet spot, add, add three to six months of, of, of cash to it and, 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 and tell upfront, this is what we're doing because we wanna be in a strong position to raise our next round of capital. Um, and we think it's gonna take this to plan for the things you just don't know. And if we go into lockdown again, you know, it's all bets are off type of thing. That's sort of where we started this conversation. So that's the advice mm -hmm. I can give. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much, Jeff. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Lots of great know-how here. We are